2: Right now on Fast, the U.S. versus China in prime time. We are just two hours away from a live congressional hearing tackling the, quote, Chinese Communist Party threat to America. What impact will this new round of saber-rattling have on major U.S. brands doing business with Beijing? And is big tech potentially in big trouble? A live report straight ahead. Plus, Grading Goldman, CEO David Solomon, running the investment bank's Big Investor Day. Did he do enough to calm investor nerves following the bungled consumer push by the firm? And later, we'll go inside targets challenging not-so-tech, Terrible quarter, Bob Iger's next 100-day challenge at Disney, and the bombshell after the bell announcement from Novavax. They say in a year from now, they might not be in business. That stopped. As you see, they're tanking. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market site. i the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Julie Beal. We start off with a big surge in social stock Shares of Meta and Snapboat jumping today as a bill that could lead to an eventual ban of TikTok makes its way through Congress. A House committee debating legislation right now that would revise some of the protections given to content distributors against U.S. sanctions. The bill then heads to the Senate. All this ahead of a primetime hearing from a new congressional committee focused on China China. House members digging in on the threat to the U.S. from the Chinese Communist Party. Eamon Javers has been talking to the committee and is here with a look at what we can expect. Eamon.
3: Hey, Melissa, this hearing tonight will give investors a sense, but maybe only a sense, of where the new rules of the road are going to be in terms of investing in China. Already, you see some investors are trying to recalibrate their investments in China to make sure they're ahead of whatever these new rules that could be coming out of Washington are. The Wall Street Journal reported that Sequoia Capital is bringing in national security experts as one example to scrutinize investments in China to make sure they're on the right side of that line. Now, it's an open question right now whether TikTok,  – just to pick one high-profile example – will be banned from government phones or banned entirely in the United States, and that's where tonight's hearing really comes in. The select committee is going to start with national security, human rights, and manufacturing issues, giving investors a feel for the politics of all this. They're going to hear from two Trump administration, former Trump administration figures, who have bipartisan pedigrees, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger. The committee is also going to hear from human rights advocate uh, Tong Yi and Scott Scott Paul, the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. One dynamic to watch in all this is whether Democrats and Republicans try to sort of out-tough each other on China. If they do, that's an indication that restrictions on Chinese investment are likely to end up on the tighter side of this line as we all try to get a feel for where policy is going here, Melissa. Back over to you.
2: Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers, again, a couple of hours away from the start of that hearing. Um, but, Guy, it almost seems like all the factors are in place right now for there to be a tough stance regarding China.
4: The rhetoric gets worse and worse, and we've said this for a while. And it's, it's happening a lot later than I thought it would happen. I thought all the Chinese, United States stuff would take place last year at some point. But here we are now, and it's seemingly getting ratcheted up. I think it's problematic. I mean, it's not getting better anytime soon. I think the saber rattling will continue. Also say this, you know, I think the market is underestimating. A VIX at 20 or so is completely underestimating the ramifications if there were to be a U.S.-China economic war
1: in fact Julian Emanuel last night on our desk said that, that we're not even pricing any kind of a the geopolitical risk around China China Taiwan uh, this is also happening while China is racing to attach data privacy rules to all US multinationals who have to who have to file and get in place and get in line JP Morgan Amazon all these big multi it's happening on both sides uh, and if you look at, at you know companies we've talked about this all the time companies like Apple companies like Tesla companies who have Starbucks um, who have both a brand and a product. Now, in consumer products, a little different than technology companies. uh, But I I tell you what, I don't think anyone is immune. And again, you talk about China saying we're worried about the data you're collecting on our border. Uh, It works both ways.
5: Yeah. yeah. And the other point is that our digital companies aren't even allowed to be in China for all intents and right. purposes. And when you think about Apple is a great one, you know, like literally, the, you know, they are selling lots of hardware there that has access in the app store. So that is kind of this digital sort of transfer there. But when you think about, you know, our social media companies, no access to their consumers. And, you know, that goes back to, you know, we're all we were doing the call today at 1230. We're looking at, um, you know, Meta was up four percent, Snap was up three and a half percent or something. It seems like kind of low hanging fruit. This is going to be continually it up here. And when I think of, like, a Snap, $16 billion market cap company going to do $5 billion in uh, sales. And when you think about that monthly active user number that they just announced at $750 million, we've been, like, wondering for years, sitting on this desk, for years and years, as Facebook just ran away with that monthly active user number from $1 billion to $2 billion to $3 billion, who is going to be the next one to get to a $1 Well, it's Snap right here. And this is a very under-monetized sort of property, in my opinion. So I think they've cut things to the bone. I think they would be obviously the very easy beneficiary if there was a TikTok ban right. I mean, in the
2: as, U.S. As Dan had, had outlined, basically, there's no upside from China, so there's no downside from being banned from China because they're not there already. So there's only upside <laughs> if TikTok is banned here in the United States or limited in any way, Julie.
6: Yeah, absolutely, for, you know, if you think about every line item that these tech companies are spending, the one that's growing the fastest is lobbyists, right? And TikTok is, you know, point number one. Me personally, if this gets banned, I'm going to be devastated. Where am I going to find my air fryer content? It's, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to recover. But these social media companies are really in a great position to be able to benefit from you know, having this wind go away for them. I think there are a lot of businesses that we don't appreciate that have a lot of exposure to China that could be doing well. I was on the phone today with a company called Bentley Securities that does infrastructure software. And obviously, with everything that China is building, they need infrastructure software. And the only way they can access these markets is with joint ventures. So it's as everyone has been saying on the desk, it goes both ways. Yeah. Um,
2: You're mentioning big, you know, multinational companies like a Starbucks and a Nike. And and there doesn't need to be a ban or anything like that in order for the Chinese population to be encouraged to turn away from
1: U.S. brands. That's right. And. Companies that are doing business there are collecting all kinds of data. They're mm-hmm. collecting consumer data, too. I mean, Starbucks is a loyalty program. So uh, I, I just think about these companies that, that, that you know, we talk about the Facebooks and the Googles that are not in China. The American consumer, I mean, Nike. I mean, the, these are our biggest brands. Yeah. And, and we're talking about a time on top of all of this. I mean, there's been a lot of news in the last couple of days about COVID origins. And, and you know, they, you're only ratcheting up tensions about things that are deeply emotional. So it's... It, it, equities haven't really priced that in yet. Now, more and more people
4: on the administration side and national security side, China, Taiwan, it clearly that seems to be getting ratcheted up as well. And I think U.S. <laughs> companies correctly pulled out of Russia when the Russia-Ukraine thing started. But obviously, so many of these companies, Russia is a sort of a it's it's a non-starter right I mean it's a it's a it's a rounding error in terms of their revenues but if China were to do something with Taiwan they would be forced to do the same thing they'd have to almost by definition they'd have to leave mainland China I would think and if they didn't it would probably be worse for the company so what's the chance of that happening I don't know 15 20 percent but there's a
5: huge tail risk around uh, China Taiwan escalating yeah so the precedent obviously that was set last year um, with Russia is going to exist but I think your point about the kind of nationalistic tendencies when it comes to consumers buying things. If you think about Apple, you know, they're like four or five in smartphones and market share. So local manufacturers there do much better than them. And then obviously a Tesla (laughs) is an easy one there. And they have less than 10 percent market share of EVs. There's just a lot of local competition. And so when you think about these two companies from the U.S., not only do they have to actually worry about consumer demand over there, but they rely from a manufacturing standpoint. And and then Tesla, we've said this again and again, rare earth materials and all these sorts of things. So I, I just think it gets really complicated. I think those two companies will be the last two battles fought in this. I think in the meantime, though, there's going to be a lot of tit for tat, and I just can't imagine that TikTok is not going to be one of the early kind of casualties in this economic war with them.
2: Yes, so get air fryer recipes elsewhere, Julie. Um, For more on tonight's hearing, let's frame DeWardrick McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, great to have you with us. Um, You know, it's it's a bipartisan issue being anti-China at this point, so it does seem like the rhetoric that the seeds are in place, they're planted. Uh, it, this would be the, the time for some sort of anti-China legislation to be passed. And yet Congress is Congress, DeWardrick. So how should we look at this in terms of whether something will actually be done?
7: It's a good question, Melissa. I've been up uh, here on the Hill all day today trying to get a sense of the mood. And I'll tell you, the mood is a bipartisan focus on competition and trying to really lay out the litany of irritants in the relationship, but also, Melissa, a real focus on trying to figure out where the weaknesses lie, and then, to your point, to try and put together some sort of legislation to address those weaknesses. But, again, to your point, Congress is Congress, it is fair to point out that we have a Republican-controlled House, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and the Senate can go its own way, and the president has his veto pen. But I will say that the House seems to have its pulse on the American people's opinion about China, which is increasingly negative. And so I think you'll see a lot uh, of issues tonight that's raised that you will find a lot of agreement out in America, outside the Beltway, on trying to do something about the threat uh, that China poses. But I do think Congress will, this committee in particular, will focus on weaknesses. And, Melissa, Mm -hmm. they think that the business community may be one of those (laughs) weak links.
2: Um, just to specifically drill down on TikTok, though, De Wardrick, I mean, the American people may be um, anti-China in terms of you know competitive threat, et cetera, but they love TikTok and they don't want to give that up. So <laughs> how how do you think you know Congress perceives that as a priority when it comes to where they can limit our interactions or limit investments, et cetera?
7: That's a good question. TikTok was in almost every conversation that I had today. And, you know, Melissa, we have some history of when Washington gets zeroed in on a Chinese company, Huawei, five, six years ago, was that company. Something eventually ends up happening. And I don't know if this is the round to do it, but I do expect that at some point, whether it's a limited ban, or a federal ban, nationwide ban, something will get done on TikTok. But I did hear an, an interesting thought today, and that is there are some people who don't want to see us <coughs> target Chinese companies specifically, but rather take a look at actions that we dislike and focus there. Otherwise, you end up in a whack-a-mole situation where it's Huawei, TikTok, and something else the next, uh, the next time around. So a, a real focus on the actions that we dislike and going after that with policy solutions.
1: Wardrick, it's Tim. This is a, a concept of exploring strategic competitive landscape and, and. You know, I get the sense that on this side, we, we, we often think that we don't have any strategic competition from China. Our, 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 you know, our tech companies are the biggest in the world. We obviously know in the chip space um, that may not be the case. Is, are you picking up on any dialogue that really this is, a, this is an opportunity for the U.S. to actually uh, better determine where strategically we might need to do more to, to compete against China? It's not just about us dominating in their part of the world.
7: Yeah, I think that's a good uh, point, Tim. I think a lot of people don't realize the degree to which China has its own uh, companies in its market that's dominating, but also looking to compete with us in third markets. And a lot of that is tech related. I I will note that today it didn't get much attention because of the hearing tonight. But the Commerce Department released uh, the latest rules on what it would take for companies to get some of that CHIPS Act funding. And there are a lot of things that will limit companies from really doing business in China, expanding there for over a decade, uh, joint research, licenses, efforts. So you're seeing it really <laughs> dial in. And I, I think this is going to continue uh, to be the, the trend going forward, Tim.
2: DeWordrick, at the same time that this hearing is going on, there's also sort of um, this notion of poking the bear, I mean, trips to Taiwan and things like that that could provoke China. Um, Is there any acknowledgement that what our actions also could be scrutinized and perceived as threats or or um, sort of being disrespectful to China? And of course, you know, our politicians will say they can't tell us what to do. And that is absolutely fair. Um, But it's certainly not making the tensions any better between the two countries.
7: No, that's right, Melissa. And you raise a great point about what at some point will be a retaliatory measure from china we know we've seen this during the trade war china will hit back and it again and you've heard me say this on the show it may not be symmetrical it may be an asymmetrical hit back but there's been a lot of things that we've been doing to really as you would say poke the bear and at some point uh... you have to expect that there will be uh... some retaliation uh... from china and that could come in and many forms but it is something that you don't hear discussed publicly a lot here in washington but behind closed doors, there are people who are aware uh, that China can punch back and may.
5: Yeah, you know, Duarte, we're, we're also locked, the American people are in this battle with inflation here. And when you think about this, you've been following this, this arena for a very long time. Everything this back and forth is inflationary at a time where I think a lot of investors, at least here in the U.S., have gotten a little bit more comfortable in 2023 that inflation is in the rearview mirror. But all of a sudden, though, if we are going to have you know this deglobalization push and additional tariffs and, and the tit for tat with a lot of these companies, doesn't isn't that a big isn't that just as big a concern right now for, for U.S. citizens and consumers and investors?
7: I think it is. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people have really drilled down on this. Certainly uh, the consumers have not. But look, I think when you start talking about decoupling, when you start talking about de-risking supply chains, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty around how all of this is going to land. And so, yeah, this absolutely could continue to have uh, impacts on the economy as we try and fight inflation. Unfortunately, though, it's not really a discussion that we're seeing, at least I didn't hear much about this uh, in the discussions that I had today, but it's a real concern.
2: Dwardrick, always great to get your perspective. Thank you.
7: Thank DeWardrick you, Melissa. McNeil
2: of Longview. Um, inflationary, I'm glad you brought that mm-hmm. up because just to bring it full circle here, um, it certainly doesn't help uh, what the Fed is trying no. to combat. It
4: makes their job much more difficult. We've talked about it for a while. If in fact this is the case, this deglobalization, I mean, that's extraordinarily inflationary, which makes a very difficult job that much more difficult, which is one of the reasons I think the Federal Reserve has showed such resolve and the rhetoric around their rate hikes has been what it's been for the last nine months or so.
1: If you look at how we're trading some of these markets, too. I mean, Taiwan Semi, back in the third week of October, when we had those shows where we we, we formed the bottom of China by just saying, is China uninvestable on this show? And in <laughs> fact, it became, it, it ripped. And if you look at the K-Web and if you look at Alibaba, um, first of all, Taiwan Semi went from a $63 stock to a 90 something dollar stock, along with semiconductors, but really outperforming. Taiwan Semi will have political risk, um, you know, attached to that investment story. And if you look at uh, the K-Web, it's down 20% after being up, 93, 94%. There's no question, um, although we've said, and I've said it, and I believe this, that EM is, a, is an allocation that I think is going to continue to pick up steam as long as the dollar stays weak. Dollar, by the way, has rallied 4% in the last three or four weeks. So it's really dented that trade. But you can't tell me Alibaba and K-Web stocks and Taiwan Semi aren't going to trade at a discount in this environment.
2: Yeah. Julie, do you think that we've um, sufficiently priced in the risk, the China risk exposure China exposure risk, she tried to say, um, into some of these stocks.
6: No, I mean, I, I definitely don't think, I mean, I don't think anything is really priced into most of these stocks. I You know, generally speaking, valuations are pretty rich and healthy when you think about just inflation, let alone any kind of geopolitical risk. And I think what people underestimate is how interwoven a lot of these companies' supply chains are you know, if there's any kind of friction, it really has a material impact, right? Think about how COVID impacted our supply chains and how that rippled through both of our economies. So I think they're pretty interdependent on each other. And we would love to be able to sit here and say, you know, go USA, we don't need them, but we really do. And so I, I think thinking about businesses that have a lot of reliance or exposure to China, it's probably not reflected in valuations.
2: Coming up, shares of Novavax plunging in the after hours after a big warning from the biotech firm why the company is struggling to remain a, quote, going concern. Plus, we're all over the after hours action. Rivian shares of the EV maker dropping after its latest results. The details on that next. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got major news on a pair of healthcare names, Novavax and Sarepta Therapeutics moving in very different directions after hours. Meg Terrell's got the details. Meg.
10: Hey, Melissa. Well, let's start with Novavax. That call is going on right now. And on this fourth quarter earnings update, uh, the first time we've heard from the company's new CEO, Uh, they warned about their ability to continue as a going concern or essentially to continue funding the operations of the company. Uh, They pointed to uncertainties around three areas, 2023 uh, revenue, uh, U.S. government funding, uh, and pending arbitration. Uh, And they said as a result of that, given these uncertainties, quote, substantial doubt exists regarding our ability to continue as a going concern through one year from the date that these financial statements are issued. Uh, Now, of course, Novavax was one of the companies in Operation War, speed they did ultimately get a vaccine to market the fourth covid vaccine to get emergency use authorization uh, but they didn't get it there soon enough to really participate in the billions of dollars that came to Pfizer and Moderna, the clear front runners uh, there in the COVID vaccine race. So you're seeing Novavax down there 25 percent. The call is ongoing. Uh, and it's really interesting because this new CEO is saying even as they're making this warning, uh, he's saying they're trying to position themselves to become one of the global leaders uh, in vaccines. So clearly uh, not counting themselves out. Uh, I'm going to turn you over to Sarepta now. This uh, a different story. Positive news uh, that stock higher in the after hours. That company's saying that the FDA has said it is not going to hold an advisory committee meeting for Sarepta's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is something investors have been watching incredibly closely. Uh, the FDA is set to make a decision on this drug by May 29th, and RBC saying this is an almost $5 billion opportunity for Sarepta. And investors have been worried if there had been an advisory committee meeting that might signal the FDA was unsure about potentially approving it. So maybe this makes it more likely that they do. We'll have to watch that in May. But Surrepta up their 15 percent now, Mel.
2: Um, Megan, going back to Novavax. So Novavax got $1.5 billion thereabouts from Operation Warp Speed. The vaccine made it to market. And I've been reading just recently, the government has been buying more and more of the vaccine. So you really have to wonder what other sort of business they were doing or maybe not doing Uh, if they're in such dire straits at this point, who their other customers might be? Because it seems like um, the government has been its primary customer, that we have been the primary funder and we have been the primary purchaser of the product.
10: Yeah, but that's the case for Pfizer and Moderna for their COVID mm. vaccines, too, because they've been in this emergency use authorization system. They're not going to transition to the commercial market until later in this year. So it's been governments all around the world making these purchases. But when they talk about the risks of arbitration, they're talking about a fight they're having right now with Gavi, which is the Global Vaccines Alliance, over doses that uh, you know they'd been promised and payments that had been promised in return. So they're fighting over millions of dollars there uh, in uh, promised for vaccines vaccine doses that ultimately were not delivered. Uh, and so the same thing is happening here in the United States. Uh, there's discussion. Yes, we did purchase more doses from Novavax. But if they need to update the vaccine for the fall, and they will need to, can they do it quickly enough? And then, you know, what will those purchases look like later in the year? And then their vaccine platform, is it?
2: Is it also, can it be, you know, made into another vaccine like Moderna, like an mRNA vaccine?
10: Yeah. So it is a more traditional uh, protein vaccine approach. And that's you know one of the things that people liked about it, adding a different uh, option a- opposed to mRNA vaccines for COVID. But they have data in flu. Uh, they are also looking to expand it and combine it into a COVID and flu vaccine. Uh, so there are a lot of potential options here. They just have to make sure that they've got the money to continue funding the trials to get these things to, across the finish line.
2: All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. <clears throat> She's so always got the answers, that Meg.
4: Of course she does. Always does.
2: Um, all right, what do you want to trade?
4: Sarepta. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's a twelve billion dollar company, probably now with two billion dollars in cash and cash equivalents. They just reported their earnings today. This is a, this is big news for them, without question. Now, the question is going to be, do you chase the stock up? What twenty bucks in the after? Probably not. But this is definitely a name that we've talked about quickly on Novavax, though, which is now probably below half a billion dollars in market cap. So I want to be careful here, but. This was a $250 stock in, I think, August of 2021. We actually talked about it then. We said, be careful here. I remember this conversation because we are trading at levels we last saw in 2015. So you talk about a massive double top. There it is. But... It shows the binary outcomes for some of these companies. On the flip side, it shows the power that one drug can have for the balance sheets and then the futures of another company like Sarepta.
1: But, but securing long-term contracts is something that nobody sees, and that was one of the big questions coming in. Now we're questioning you know, how much of that U.S. government funding, there's $416 million left, but when they start saying... As a going concern, we're concerned. I mean, that's, that is stuff. Um, meanwhile, the other side of this is, is Pfizer. It's, it's trading basically at one-year lows. It's trading at this 40-41 level. They announced uh, that CGen deal, or at least, excuse me, that CGen speculation is out there boosting their oncology pipeline and where they expect to, to have an extra 30 billion of, 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 of revenues by 2030. I think they're well on their way. And you look at the range trade on, on Pfizer, really attractive place to own it here.
2: All right. We are all over the after hours action in Rivian, shares of the EV maker, dropping after its latest results. Details next. And here's what else is on tap
7: The grade on Goldman. Investors focused on CEO David Solomon as he lays out plans to grow the investment bank. Did he pass? Fail. The traders are giving their grades next. Plus, consumer crunch. Our next guest says we're in the calm before the storm. The three key drivers, she says, are dictating the economy's landing. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
8: From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Rivian. Shares of the EV maker plunging after posting a smaller loss than expected but saying revenues misestimates. Rivian also making offering a weaker production target for 2023, saying it expects to make 50,000 new vehicles for the year. That's versus the 60,000 expected. The company saying on its conference call that supply constraints will alleviate in the second half of the year and that it forecasts forecast positive gross profit in 2024. It does have a lot of money on the balance sheet. It has that going for it.
1: It does. And we kind of knew what these deliveries were going to be. We knew what this production was going to be. That guide is bad. And and in terms of pricing and the bridge to positive gross margins in 24, I mean, the the competitive costs and where these guys have to be are really important right now. It's certainly an environment where capital is a different cost. Their balance sheet is fine, but they're burning a lot.
6: Yeah. Julie? Yeah, I mean, if you think of their burn, their burn is the equivalent of debt. And right now, that level of burn is really pretty un and unsustainable and you think about the valuation relative to what they're able to produce and the fact that this is a pretty high end price and consumers that are able to pay this much for a pickup truck are pretty thin on the ground. So, you know, I continue to believe that something like this just cannot trade like a software business, particularly when, you know, we know that the terminal margin on this business is low. I don't care what kind of EV it is, it's a low margin. So,
2: so far we've gotten, what, Rivian, mm-hmm. we've gotten Lucid, um, we've heard from Ford on its EV business, not so we've much. heard from yep. Stellantis on its, front, on its EV business, and the common thread is that it's tougher than it looks, that there is a lot of competition, and maybe, and I will say this knowing that I don't have, a, there's not a lot of Tesla bulls on this desk, but on the eve of Tesla's investor meeting tomorrow that maybe Tesla is best positioned right now.
4: Well that's given, yeah.
2: g- given what all these other guys are telegraphing.
4: And that's what the Tesla bulls and I was actually going to say, you know, if you're a Tesla bull, you want to hear this continued dialogue out of all your competition because maybe the competition is not as robust as as the Tesla bears want to make it out to be. With all that said, there is still competition out there and Tesla still has rallied more than 100% and it is still in my opinion
5: an extraordinarily expensive stock right here. Not a bull, not not a
4: bull.
1: You're the
2: opposite I, I, of
5: the bull. What I find is interesting is that here's a company, you know, Tesla has a six hundred and fifty billion dollar market cap company, you know, and so from when they went public in two thousand and ten, I mean, Elon must never had quarters like like this where they would actually guide lower and and say, you know what I mean? Oh, we're not going to hit those targets. He would actually do the opposite, and he got rewarded for that. I, I mean, for ten plus years. And I think the story has changed now because you have Detroit, you have Korea, you have the Germans, you have the Chinese. You You have a lot of people making these cars right now and not just these upstarts like you just mentioned a lucid or a rivian those guys are going to go away i mean let's just be frank okay like like they're just and it's going to be the incumbents that are going to be battling it out with tesla right now and so i guess my point is in the history of automobiles over the last hundred plus years Um, has there ever been a company that was able to kind of maintain this sort of dominance as it relates to market cap relative to their market share for the product which they're producing? And I would say no. So to me, I think tomorrow's going to be a dud, and um, I think this probably – the story turns. A little a bit. Sell
2: the news event, which yeah, seems to be the consensus, at least on Wall yeah. Street. Um, but in terms of, I mean, the battle seems to be harder, though. I mean, isn't that what we're learning? Because even the incumbents are having difficulty doing this. What well, do you think we are? are
1: it's but, like early, but, for the incumbents. I mean, incumbents. I mean so but I, I'll say this about Rivian. I mean, they're, they're still going to be, even at, at, a, at a guide of 50,000 down from 60, they're still going to be up 130% year over year. I mean, they, I, I, they're growing massively relative to themselves. Um, I think the, the, the issues at Ford are things that look, we, we spent a lot of time talking about. Ford has spent a lot of time talking about it. It's not just what's going on in their EV businesses, what's going on in different parts of the world and streamlining. Uh, Tesla, for a long time, has had a tough time making that car the Model 3 for the amount of money they said they were going to make it for. And I think they're all having that issue, but Tesla has the balance sheet to get through it.
2: Coming up, the take on target, earnings topping expectations, but results weren't exactly a bullseye. What the company had to say about the strength of the consumer. And speaking of the consumer, our next guest says they're nearing a breaking point. Rebecca Patterson will join us next to lay out what she sees driving the economic landing. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets closing out February with another set of losses. The Dow dropping 232 points for its lowest close since November. Tuesday's losses rounding out a losing month for the major indices with the Dow down more than 4%. Meantime, Target managed to hold on to a gain today after posting an earnings beat this morning. But the big box retailers full year earnings guidance missed expectations. Inventories, though went down, yeah. which is exactly where they needed down 13%, Guy.
4: So the margins. So when you give stuff away, that's what happens. In, so they figured it out, and I think you're seeing a bit of a relief rally. And it trades at a trough multiple to Walmart. We've talked about it. Their product mix is different. They should. But it's not all that inspired a rally that we've seen. And this stock has sort of been mired at this level for quite some time. So I don't think Target is out of the woods quite yet in terms of the stock
2: yeah i mean they did say that there's significant uncertainty and the big variable is how the consumer will be later on so that's a huge question mark still for target and you know all the guys for um for that sake our next guest warns consumer spending activity suggests big trouble ahead rebecca patterson is a former chief investment strategist at hedge fund bridgewater associates she's out with a cnbc op-ed today the calm before the storm these three drivers will dictate the landing ahead for the u.s economy rebecca Welcome, great to see you, great to have you on FAST again. Um, before we get to the three drivers, a wily e. Coyote moment, that doesn't sound like a good kind of moment for the U.S. consumer, and that's exactly what you think is gonna happen.
11: I think that's where we're headed. It's, it's interesting, and Target was a perfect example of the dynamic, you know, their, their earnings for right now, fine, their expectations soft, and, and the consumer right now, fine, but where are we going? And so when you think about what's holding up the consumer right now, they spent down all their excess savings from the pandemic fiscal transfers. And what struck me and what really prompted me to write this piece was the Federal Reserve report that came out recently that showed that in the fourth quarter, we saw between mortgages and credit cards, 400 billion dollars going on to total household debt balances. That was the biggest increase on a quarter that we've seen in 20 years. And credit card interest rates today are up to 20%, which is also a multi-decade high. And I look at this and say, okay, the can consumer keeps piling on credit as long as the job market's tight and they have incomes. But what if companies start to pull back? Or what if consumers just say, maybe I need to be a bit more cautious. And on the latter, we saw that today in the conference board February consumer confidence report, it showed current conditions strong, consumer expectations, the weakest we've seen since last July. And so we're not there yet. That's what makes this tough, but you're starting to see more and more dots, more and more markers that are telling us that the consumer is gonna get more cautious. And when they do, think about the linkages. If the consumer's spending less, it's less revenue for a company, companies are making less money, guess what they're gonna start doing? Pairing back CapEx, pairing back hiring, greater layoffs means there we go and we get their earnings hit. So I do think we're looking at uh, equity market downside later this year, and I would be watching that interplay between the consumer, companies in the labor market, and of course the Fed and those borrowing costs.
1: Rebecca, it's Tim. Great to see you again on the show. And, and I guess you're talking about the divergence that goes on, is going on between where rates are and, and where stocks are. And and how are you explaining this? Because we're sitting here scratching our heads, watching a 65 basis point move on, on where we've gone in the bond market, pick, you know, short end or long end. And and yet this divergence between where stocks are, it's very difficult, especially at a time we're finally getting that pullback in, in EPS, certainly operating EPS following US GAAP and reported EPS. So what do you say to that?
11: Well, I think there's probably a lot of reasons playing into this, but two that I'm really focused on. One is that the consumer's so strong, and I think there is still a lot of hope out there that we can have a very soft landing, that companies, rather than letting workers go, will simply reduce the job openings and more participation potentially. All those things together could pull wage inflation down, allow the Fed to, to pause. And the consumer can keep going for some time. I think the other factor that might be leading equities to look through this a little bit is the fact that interest rates are still expected to fall starting at the end of this year. Now, the market has increased its pricing for a terminal Fed funds rate for this year. And now people are talking about five and a half, even 6% for a terminal Fed funds rate by mid year but the market is still pricing, that we get rate cuts, significant rate cuts next year. And for the Fed to actually ease, you need to get a lot of economic weakness. You need to get inflation not only to target, but probably below. If those things happen, then I think stocks are gonna come down. So I, I think the market's trying to say, oh, the Fed's gonna pivot soon, that'll help us. This is just short term. Uh, and maybe we get a soft landing, but I think both of those scenarios, while not impossible, are pretty low probabilities.
2: So Rebecca, you're free from the shackles of Bridgewater and you're doing your own <laughs> thing. So now you can actually talk individual stocks and trading and all that stuff that we used to talk to you about a long time ago. Um, how do you put mm-hmm. this to work? Uh, directionally, are you, you know, are you bearish on the markets or what sorts of trades would you put on to back this thesis?
11: I mean, right now, we're still benefiting from the China reopening. We're benefiting from incredibly low gas prices relative to what was feared, which is helping Europe's economy. Um, and, and the U.S. consumer, as I said, and that's you know, two-thirds of our economy, is still kicking strong. So in, in the immediate future, things look okay. The problem is that as I look three months, six months ahead, and it's hard to know the timing, I see more and more signs that this thing is going is to fizzle out. And so the question is, when do you start taking some chips off the table? I think it depends on your risk appetite. It depends on your time frame, what kind of trader you are. Personally, I'm taking more of a three or six month view and saying, you know what? I'm going to start building in some of my portfolio insurance now. You know, the T-bill, six month T-bill today got to 5.14%. That's the highest it's been since 2007. If I can make 5% plus on six-month cash, that doesn't seem like a terrible opportunity cost. Are stocks really going to go up 10%, 20% in the next six months? I kind of doubt it. Um, So doing a little bit of that, taking some chips off the table, and then within your equity exposure, look, I know the defensives have not had a great year uh, start. You know, utilities are down, what, six, seven percent year to date, but starting to take that weakness and use it to build in, again, just a modest incremental slice of portfolio insurance Mm -hmm. over the next couple of months. So when the party does end, when you have the Wiley Coyote moment, uh, you're not falling off the cliff. You find a nice cloud to land in.
2: Rebecca, great to have you on the show. Hope you'll come visit us here on, on the desk soon. Rebecca Patterson. Absolutely. Thank you. Coming up, pass or fail, Goldman gets graded. The traders weighing in on how CEO David Solomon did it at the investment bank's Investor Day today. That's next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Goldman Sachs gutted today as the investment bank hosted its second ever investor day. The company's consumer business and focus CEO David Solomon saying the bank is exploring strategic alternatives, suggesting a possible sale of the remaining parts of those platforms. Solomon also renewing focus on the company's asset and wealth management business, saying they would be the growth engine for the bank. So we thought this would be a good time to grade Goldman. Guy.
4: Grade Goldman, I like well. As Tim mentioned last night, it's very difficult for me not to give them an A, but I actually thought they did a good job today. With Between John Waldron and David Solomon, I think they basically laid out a plan for growth. They have a very now, in my opinion, visibility in terms of their earnings stream with asset management and banking. They still dominate in those areas. I think it trades at a trough multiple to, to book value, which I think is around 305 or so. You put a one and a half times book on this and you're talking about a stock that should be north of $400. During David's tenure, as I mentioned, the stock is effectively doubled. I don't think people necessarily love him. But I also think there are a lot of people with bows and arrows out there trying mm-hmm. to knock him off. And I think that's unjustified.
2: Mm. So you give them an a. a. Julie, where do
6: you stand? It's a C plus for me. Ooh, you know, obviously, that's failing.
2: That's failing. <laughs>
6: that's failing in Mel's house uh, for sure. Look, obviously, banking and trading is an A plus business, but it's a cyclical business. And that's why they've been trying to diversify away from that but everything that's kind of happening in consumer banking, it's been a mess. It's disappointing to hear David talking about how, you know, they misunderstood the competitive advantage. You think about it, right? That's what they advise clients on, competitive advantage. And so it looks like they won't even take their own advice when it comes to their consumer banking business. And then if you look at wealth management, you know, like in terms, if you look at how their asset managers have been performing, they have a slide in their deck that says 71% of their asset managers and equities are outperforming, you know, 50% of their peer group. 50%, that's what, they don't even have, not everyone is even performing that well. That's like that, that anchorman line that's like, this works 60% of the time, all of the time, right? Like that's just not very good performance for them to be touting. And if that's gonna be the economic engine for their business, I worry that they don't really have the right pieces in place. So yeah, I'm underwhelmed. I'm plus.
1: Tim? I'm going B plus. Uh, I don't think he, like. it's the second investor day they've had in their history. Usually at investor days, you're, you're there to show up. There's good news coming. And there wasn't a whole lot that they could tell us. I mean, the wealth and asset management business are where you're going to get the multiple expansion. Um, the fact that, I said this yesterday, they needed to deliver on the return on tangible equity and the efficiencies, you know, 15 to 17 percent, 60 percent. It's what they needed to say. It's what they did. And, and I think medium to long term, there's nothing wrong here.
5: Yeah, I'll just give it a B. Um, As far as I'm concerned, as long as I've been in the business, um, betting against Goldman over the last 25 years has not been a great thing. They make money in bad markets. They make money in good markets. Maybe this is a little bit of style shift. But the fact that they're kind of facing the music, I I think uh, David Solomon's going to figure this out. All
2: right. Meantime, one options trader is making a big bet that Goldman could have a very bumpy ride ahead. Mike Coe has the action. Mike.
4: Yeah, so I think the options market here actually giving Goldman, uh, like Dan, a B. We saw over two times the average daily options volume. Uh, the bigger trade that we saw was a June 300-400 strangle. And actually, the options trader sold that. So that trader is willing to get long 80,000 shares of Goldman Sachs down at 300, but is betting that the upside between now and June is probably limited to that upper 400 strike. So this is a bet, basically, that maybe the worst of the bumps are behind it.
2: All right. Thank you, Mike. Mike Cohen for more options action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, the first 100 days, a second time around. Disney CEO Bob Iger has been busy since retaking control. But what challenges still lie ahead? We'll bring you the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bob Iger clocking his second first 100 days as Disney CEO. And while that's, while a lot has changed since he retook the helm, questions remain about where the stock goes from here. Julia Borson's got all the details. Julia.
0: Well, Melissa, Disney has outperformed the market, but underperformed most of its rivals in the past hundred days as Iger has acted quickly to undo the work of his predecessor, Bob Chapek, and to chart a new path for the media giant. Iger re- restructured the company to unite Disney's creative divisions and to separate off ESPN, putting decision-making back in the hands of Disney's creative executives. He also announced layoffs and cost-cutting, targeting $5.5 billion in savings, which ended his proxy battle with Nelson Peltz. Now Iger faces some big questions. What's he gonna do with Hulu? Will he buy out the stake owned by CNBC's parent company Comcast? Or will he sell Disney's stake? How will he manage ESPN's future and Disney's commitment to general entertainment? And who will be his successor? All of these questions come as Iger faces some meaningful external challenges, including a potential ad recession, as well as a pullback in consumer spending, which could hurt their streaming subscription revenue, as well as revenue out of the Parks division, with which Melissa, as we know, has been a powerhouse.
2: Yep. Julia, thank you. Julia borston Julie, where do you stand on Disney?
6: Well, I mean, I think it's interesting to hear the steps that he's taken. I think, you know, the change in Nelson Peltz deciding not to pursue the proxy battle is meaningful. And I think it really speaks to Iger's ability, you know, to talk to people and calm people and get this ship more in a better position. I still worry that a lot of this business is really on the back of the parks and that if we have any weakness in Uh, the consumer, that the parks are really going to suffer and that the economics of this entire business are also going to struggle.
5: You know, it's worth noting that when Bob Iger was announced that he was coming back, and it was a big surprise, stock gap to about a hundred dollars. If you guys remember that, it was trading like in and around the '90s, and that's exactly where the stock's trading right now. And what's also interesting in late December, the stock made a new 52-week low, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about what he might do, and maybe he gets a little bit of a honeymoon period again, um, that sort of thing. But the stock really does feel a bit heavy. And to Julie's point, I think a lot of the stuff that people were excited about a couple years ago with the streaming businesses, they're less excited now, and we are in. In a very uncertain economy and that streaming business has gotten a lot more competitive
1: I just you know to me some of the parts I feel pretty good about owning it and, and I feel pretty good about their core business and I feel pretty good about you've priced in a lot of bad news for media companies on average we all know what's going on with ad spend we all know the cyclicality that's well priced in here I you know I, I like it in fact I think you're getting the rest of the business after you do some of the parts uh, and and add up the studios for for you know six times you know and I think that's pretty attractive much better
4: now though, than there was on February 2nd or thereabouts when it were earnings and we actually sat we said that cost cutting is not a long-term growth strategy stock was 122 we said you better pull the ripcord here we are now so i'm with tim actually at these levels
2: you're going to say we sat here on this desk
4: well i was going to we say this that we this desk. weren't mm-hmm. no. and apparently we the, the network lighting network. here is all like you're
2: looking you go to the beach last week no that's know. why i've gotten a lot of texts about that i don't yeah. know what's going on up next oh. final trades
6: For the final trade julie Beal. Uh, bentley securities with the company i mentioned infrastructure software they're steady and boring and i like it
1: tim it's pfizer i, I you look at those headlines from yesterday whether this deal happens or not they are m a bolting on for their pipeline and for 2030 sales i like pfizer here dan yeah guy and carter like gold gld i bought a call spread in april guy mel we we're just talking about it does
4: the cane trade put the rangers over the top yes I like that. Listen to her. Tim. LGR. Oh, I mean, she, she knows. She, she, she knows, knows a hockey. about hockey. No knows hockey. I'm with Dan, That's by awesome. the way, except it's a Barrett gold, G-O-L-D.
2: All right. Thanks for watching. Fast see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.